willing and able, if you stand with me as we read this morning from God's Word, we'll be in Genesis uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning. We need your spirit. We need your spirit to open our our hearts and our eyes and our ears that we may hear it and understand it. We ask this morning that you would use your word to to encourage us and equip us. You also use your word to convict us and point us to the cross of Christ and the work that was accomplished there. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. This is God's Word. It's without error in any part. It was given for our good and for His glory. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series. And uh, it, it made sense if it's going to be about the stages of life that uh, being uh, the, the youth and family guy and having young children that I guess I, should, I was predestined to start this thing. Um, and and we're, we're going to start this morning. We're going to look at, at the, the questions that my students ask. The questions about life that they're trying to figure out and answer. And the questions that, that we actually begin to ask of the world long before we're teenagers. Um, and the questions that shape our conversations even when we meet someone. Um, there was a, a few years ago, there was a, an article in the Atlantic Magazine. Uh, one of their contributors made a trip to visit a friend in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, they went to a party with this friend. And, and a friend of a friend asked them, so where do you go to church? And uh, this writer is, is not a Christian and was offended by the, the question at first. And then as they spent a little bit more time there, they realized this is just the question that you ask in Greenville. And so she wondered if there are other questions like that around our country that, that are regionally specific to that area. And so she asked her readers if they had questions like this, that there were conversation starters and, and people flooded her inbox with answers. So if you're, if you're Maybe from Austin, it's a city that a lot of people move to. You might say, what brought you to Austin? Or if you're in Florida, it might be, oh, well, where are you from up north? Where do you, you know, where, where do you spend the rest of the year? <laughs> if you're um, from Washington, D.C. area, it might be, what do you do for a living? Having lived in St. Louis for a few years, they have a pr- particularly peculiar one. They ask you, so where'd you go to school? I, of course, quickly answered Virginia Tech, and they said, oh, you're not from here. (laughs) When they ask that question, they're not asking what college you went to. They're asking, where'd you go to high school? They're asking it because in St. Louis, it has the second highest concentration of private schools in the country outside of Boston. And so by asking you where you went to school, they can tell where you're from in the city. Are you from North County or South County or West County? Are you from the city proper? That they can tell even sometimes what neighborhood you're from if you went to one of the parish schools at the local Catholic church. 
They can maybe tell what your daddy did if you went to John Burroughs or MICDS because they cost more than my college tuition to go there. They can tell how serious you are about, about your religion, maybe. They, you know, you're, you're evangelical, and maybe you're reformed. Your kids went to Westminster. You're, you're marginally Catholic, but you wanted your kids to get a good education, so they went to Priory. These are questions that we ask in different places that begin to answer for us, who are you? Where do you fit? What's your story? They're questions that are foundational to how we interact. They're questions that are foundational to who we are. And and they're they're questions that that my teens are asking, that my students are asking, that my friends are asking. They're even questions that our children are asking. Hatley Grace, recently laying with her her mama, um, asked, who am I more like? Am I more like you or am I more like daddy? She was asking because she had heard us talking about Anna Clarence and about Mary Margaret. Anna Clarence got Mary Margaret's nose. Don't know where it came from. Doesn't look like mine, I don't think. Doesn't look like Mary's really, but it looks like Mary Margaret's. And, and Mary Margaret has my personality. She's a goofball, and she takes unnecessary risk in life. <laughs> Why are you on top of the couch? Why are you jumping off the couch? That hurt. Those are words we say often to her. And so Hatley Grace is wondering, who am I like? Who am I? We, we begin to ask them of our, of our children, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a, a president of the United States, a cowboy, or a fireman. I'm none of those things. But they're, they're, they're the questions. And I, you, you might be sitting there, you might be thinking, well, you know, I know those are the questions that kids ask and that your students ask, but, you know, Marty, I'm retired. I'm not asking that question any longer. What, I want you to think, though, this morning that you probably are still asking that question. And, and how you answer that question really dictates how you live life. If you answer them well as you're growing up, when, when you get to be, you know, in your midlife crisis time, maybe your midlife crisis only looks like the, the, the unneeded boat or the, the sports car or the motorcycle instead of the walking away from your family and your kids. You know, we, we don't answer these questions well. They create problems. So it's why we have a generation of young men who are in what psychiatrists and psychologists and sociologists are calling extended adolescence. They refuse to move out. They refuse to grow up because these questions weren't answered well. So how we answer these questions really dictates for us a lot of life. And when we answer them poorly, it leaves us wandering. It leaves us aimless and directionless. And these are the questions that were being answered for, for the Israelites. They're getting, you know, Moses has been given this word and is giving to them as they're sitting, waiting for the promised land. These questions are defining for them who they are what their purpose is, why they've been wandering in the desert for so many years waiting for this land they're going to enter. These are questions that that we need answers to. And I think Genesis here in Genesis 1 answers them for us. It tells us that that we're made in the image of God. It tells us that 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 we're we're made that way so that we can give Him glory with our lives and and, and our gifts. And it's a different answer than what culture gives. It's a different answer than what science alone would give. It's a distinct answer. My question for you this morning as you ponder this is, is what difference does the answer really make to you? Where in your day-to-day life does this really matter? Because I think it does. I think it, I think it really does matter. What decisions are you making about what you will do or won't do based on your answers to these foundational questions? I think that, that the answers that Genesis gives us help us to understand our worth 
Help us to learn our purpose and help us to make sense of the world around us. First, it's a statement of our worth. Genesis 1 is a statement of our worth. You get in the mail a bank statement or an investment statement or you go sit down with your financial advisor and you get a, a bottom line of what is your net worth. And you hope it's positive. You know, sometimes when you're in college or seminary or in struggling in life, it's not always. There's sometimes red numbers and you get a little worried. But Genesis 1 is a statement of our worth. Very similar to that. Who we are and, and the worth that we have. It's a passage that, that, that progresses from the beginning of it until the very end of Genesis 1. And it, it progressively, it grows and, 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 and continues to build upon itself until it reaches the pinnacle. And we see it in, in the language, even. Um, in verse 24 and preceding, when, when God is filling the, 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 the creation with living things, he keeps saying things like, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds. There's a whole lot of their kinds. You get to verse 26. You get to verse 26 and the language shifts. It changes. We don't make a big deal out of that, but, but in the Hebrew language, shifts in pattern are a big deal. They're supposed to draw your attention to something. They're supposed to bring a heightened awareness to it. And what does it shift to? All of a sudden it shifts to, let us make man in our image. Let us make man, in a sense, according to our kind, to my kind. From the very start, it's it's the second page in, in, in my Bible, depending on your typeset, it might be the first page. But from the very get go, the Bible is saying that that because you are created in the image of God, there's something distinct about you. You are the only creature of creation that bears the image of God, that's stamped with the image of God. There is worth and value and dignity that are intrinsic to who you are because you're created in God's image. Think about that. Where, where do you go to define your worth? Where do you go to, to, to measure yourself? And we all go somewhere. We go somewhere. Is it how many square feet your house is? Is it how well adjusted your kids are? Is it the college you're headed off to in the fall or the college you went to? Is it the job title or the family or the finances or the retirement? What is it that you use to measure your worth? It's something. And we all know that that we walk this tenuous line of everything being okay and secure and everything falling apart. And it all being gone just like that. And Genesis 1 says, no, it's none of those things. None of those things are your measure of worth or your value. None of those things truly bring you the dignity that you deserve. Because those things can't give you what's been given to you and just who you are. The crown of creation. Made in the image of God. Some of you need reminding of this this morning. Some of you have set aside careers and the fruits of your, your, your education and a- academics to stay at home and raise kids. And they're headed off to college. And the last one's leaving the nest. And you're going, where, 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 where's my worth? Where's my value? How do I measure myself now? Some of you, like some of my students, need to hear this because you've made a choice that 
the community doesn't value. The community around you says it's a lesser choice. It's a choice you make when you're not good enough. Some of you have chosen, instead of doing the, the normal, I'm going to head off to a four-year college and decide I'm going to pursue a trade or I'm going to join the military or I'm going to stay at home and go to John Tyler. And I know most of us in this room would say those are, those are fine things, but the community we live in says they're lesser things. I know it because I sit across from students who feel that and struggle with it and feel demeaned and devalued need to hear that your worth is not dependent upon your circumstances or your choices. That your value and your dignity are entirely apart from those things. See, the world around us takes a, a drastically different approach to these questions and to our views of worth and value. One side, like, that says that, that we're just, just happens. It's, it's by chance. You're just a random collection of cells and chemicals that somehow came together. And that's just what it is. Evolution and natural selection took their course, and you are the product of it. There's another side that, that, that says, no, that, that you're actually um, the most important person in the world. Uh, you, where do you see this in culture? Of course, Oprah, Oprah tells us this. Um, Oprah said, and I'm not sure if it was on a Starbucks cup or something, but she says, the biggest adventure you can take is to live the life of your dreams. The biggest adventure you could take is to live the life of your dreams. And it would be an adventure. I mean, I've had dreams with like unicorns in space and lasers from my eyes and stuff like that. And we chuckle, but, but, but culture's screaming that to us. That the world revolves around us and our pleasure and our comfort and our security. It's about us. And so on one, on one side, you have an idea that you're really not worth that much. You're just a random collection of cells. And on one side, you're the most important person in the world, and you are the greatest addition to the human race. And there is folly in both. One says you're worth very little, and one says you know you're worth by your experience and your level of pleasure and comfort that you have and attain. Think about that. If, you, if you're only living for your own pleasure and comfort and security, think about the dark places that can take you. Th- th- think about the places where, because, you know, I, I can eat a whole lot of uh, cinnamon pinwheels. They're like my favorite little Debbie cake. And after about the third one, I should probably stop. Um, but they kind of come attached in packages of two, so if you eat the third, you should eat the fourth. But by the time I get to the end of the box, I don't feel well. It's that diminishing return. Economics taught me that in college. But we treat pleasure like that. And, and, and when one thing stops giving us the pleasure that we need, we know we need to get something even more drastic to give it to us. And our world is suffering from it and with it. And many of us are. So when you find your worth in those things, it's going to take you places you don't want to go. But the Christian story, the Bible gives us a different one. It tells us we're made in the image of God, of the creator, of the one true and living God, and that every human life has value and dignity and worth, no matter what race or culture or ethnicity, no matter what stage of life or socioeconomic background, no matter what job title, no matter what family, 
None of those things. That His dignity, your value, are because God has given it to you as an image bearer. He has stamped you with it. And there's radical implications for this. There's radical implications for for the church, for you individually, for communities, for relationships, for marriages. Think about this. that, that, that it, It means that human equality is a real concern of God's people. That human rights are a real thing for the church to think through and dwell on and fight on. And fight for. Because every human life has dignity and value and it changes how you view people. You don't, you don't just think about things from a public policy, but how you actually live your life and caring for those individuals and loving people and entering in and showing them the dignity and the value they have as image bearers. Think about when's the last time you did something to someone or didn't do something to someone because they're an image bearer? When's the last time you stopped yourself and said, I shouldn't say that or do this because that person is a, a, bears the image of God? And that's what James 3 is, is, is all about. And I know it's pretty technical when we read that. But that's precisely the point. We need to think about the way we talk and use words when we talk to others, when we talk about others. Because there's a worth and a dignity that goes with being an image bearer that we should have respect for, that we should honor. It changes how you see yourself. And I have friends that struggle to see themselves as valuable. And Genesis 1 tells them, look in the mirror and realize how valued they are. How beautifully and wonderfully made they are. When was the last time that that you avoided something? When was the last time that you remembered the privilege it is that you are an image bearer and you stopped yourself? You, you, you thought, I shouldn't do this or say that or think this because I'm an image bearer. And that's a privilege. You might remember the, the, the words of Aslan in the, 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 the Chronicles of Narnia. He says that, that, that you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is both an honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor of the world. Genesis 1 tells us that we're regal and that we're all related. That we're made in the image of God and we have dignity and we have value. It starts with us, but it goes out to everyone. It's also not just a statement of your worth, but it is a description of your purpose. It helps you understand and learn what, what you're to do. Right? Uh, as you read Genesis 1, it, it, it says you're made in the image of God, and it doesn't tell us a lot about what that image is. If you finish reading Genesis, it doesn't give you any more clarification. If you finish reading the Bible, it doesn't expound upon it that much more. There's nowhere where there's a footnote or an endnote or, you know, parentheses that, that, that spells it out for you. This is what this means. It's there, just not plainly visible in a definition how we would like it. And theologians wrestle with this. They wrestle with the idea of what does it mean to be an image bearer? Some take it to mean that the things that make you distinctively human, that you're irrational and you're relational, that you have opposable thumbs, that you have a moral compass and the use of language, all these other things. That, that's what it means to be an image bearer, that, that no, no other part of creation has those things and you do, so that's what it is. The other side says, no, it's actually what you do that makes you the image bearer. What are you doing with those things 
that make you the image bearer. You're worshiping people. You're loving people. Those are the image bearing things that Genesis is speaking of. But it's actually when you marry those two things together, the structure, the things that that make you human, and then what you do with them, the function that is really what it means to be an image bearer. Structure and function. We, we know this to be true. We see it in creation and other animals, right? They're, they are made a certain way because they're to do a certain task or they need to do a certain thing. We, we know that when we're creating things, we, we build structures with a function in mind. You know, you, you don't set out to, to build a house and pick up plans for a carport. Not a whole lot of security when there's no windows or walls or doors. Structure leads to function. And together, they are what it means to bear image. Genesis 1, we we see this. Verse 26 says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. that's, That's who we are. That's that sort of statement of structure. But it's also the beginning of an understanding of the function. You see, the, 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 the more wooden translation isn't to make it in our image. It's to make, it, make us a visual representation. So it, it, it would read, let us make man as a visual representation of us. You know, our ears don't hear it as well. But, but, but the Israelites would have heard this and known that when a king comes in and conquers a land, he goes and builds a statue of himself there with his name on it, and that he's the king, and that he conquered you. So that you'll know. It's his image. It's supposed to reflect his sovereignty and authority over this conquered place. He didn't move there. He wanted to stay back in his palace. That's what what God is doing. He's saying, let us make man and woman to be our likeness. Let us place them in creation and give them the, the, the task of taking dominion outside the garden to the whole of creation. Let us place them there in order to reflect, to represent, and to mirror to each other and to the rest of creation who God is. We can get more specific as to what that that purpose entails. As as verse 28 says, He blessed them and He said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. Theologians usually call this the cultural mandate. You know, what, what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to go and have dominion. You're supposed to go and, and, and subdue it. You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve weren't just supposed to you know, tend to the farm there in the garden. They were supposed to take it out of the garden to all of creation. And not just them, but their offspring. And it was supposed to continue. They, they, they were supposed to create and invent and design. They're to make things, to invent stuff, to make music, right? I mean, you'd, uh, you see some, in the Psalms, it's often said that they were written for a particular instrument. Instruments don't grow on trees. Uh, you don't just walk by like a, a guitar tree and pull one off when it's ripe and ready. Somebody had to walk past that tree and say, you know, if I take this and I carve it and, and, I, and I do this and I take some animal intestines and I string them out and I dry them and I put it across it, it's going to make music. And if I move my fingers in a certain way, it's going to make better music. And if I put my voice to it, it's going to get better. And they magnified and brought glory to God and praised Him by creating cultural artifacts. 
And the, the, the mandate wasn't revoked at the fall in Genesis 3. We'll talk about that more, and I'm sure it'll come up uh, again as we go through this series. But we know that, that people can, can take things and make them, and they can use them for good and God's glory, and they can use them for evil and for bad. That's, that's the mark of, of, of the fall on our image-bearing. One theologian says that, that, that the point here is the command is for us, is for human beings to take God's untamed world and to transform it into cultural artifacts that serve society, that fit God's design, and that reflect His beauty. Let me draw a line from Genesis 128 to, to you, because many of you are sitting here going, I don't carve wood, and I definitely don't mess with animal intestines, and I don't play the guitar. Um, but, but you make spreadsheets or sales, or write computer programs, or posters for children's science projects. You draw up legal documents and sales contracts. Some of you love to garden or, or tinker in the garage when you've broken something. Some of, you, some of you, you don't understand it, but when you're at a birthday party and the birthday cake comes out, you're the one who begins to sing first. Happy birthday. It just happens. You don't know why you can't understand it. Some of you play Minecraft too much or Fortnite or whatever game it is. Some of you devote too much time. Some of you write poetry. Some of you cry when you read Where the Red Fern Grows or watch Avengers Endgame. Or like me, when you watch Rudy. Every time it gets me. Why? Because you were made for it. You were made for it what we learn from Genesis 1. All these things that bring so much joy and depth and meaning to life, we were made for. Well, there's a ton of baggage that comes with being part of Adam's family, but there's a ton of beauty that comes with it. And that baggage, as we look at the issues that we're going to unpack these next few weeks, we're going to talk about that baggage. We're also going to talk about the beauty, the wonder, the joy, and the depth of life that we get from being image bearers. And from having the purpose of bearing God's image to one another and to the world. There's beauty and wonder. Because you were made to subdue and to have dominion. That's, that's, that's the banner mission statement over, over life, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion. It's not just a description of our purpose. It's not just a statement of our worth, but it, it's, it's a explanation of our experience. It helps us understand the world around us. Blaise Pascal is a brilliant man and mathematician, philosopher, theologian. Earlier, I also called him a magician because I don't understand math, but he, um, he wrote a book, Ponce's, and, and he takes up this question. He takes up this question that, that um, we ask. He says, how do I, ex- how do I explain myself? How do I explain myself? And he's not talking about how do you explain yourself to your spouse when you get caught like, with your hand in the cookie jar at midnight and she thought you were in bed and you're not. Um, with the baby waking up a lot more often, that happens. It's not that kind of question. So it's, it's the question that, that, that he's saying, I, I can't get my, my, my head around myself. The contradictions of my life, I don't understand. How do I explain this to people? And, and he really, he, he's... he's um, Asking for a coherent story to make sense of it all. Using what I would call J- Jason Bourne theology. 
If you're not familiar with the Jason Bourne movies, um, I'm going to ruin them for you. Sorry. They've been out for a long time, and the books were out before that. And, um, but if you haven't seen, there's three of them. And, and it opens with this guy floating in the ocean. And he gets picked up by some fishermen. His, he gets um, revived, and uh, he doesn't remember anything about who he is, why he's in the ocean. Nothing. But he begins to get pictures of who he is by what he does. Right, he, uh, just randomly all of a sudden somebody's trying to kill him and he just does some crazy martial arts. Unbelievable at it. He, he has an understanding of like weapons and, and things that normal people don't. He speaks multiple languages. He's the greatest driver of all time. I mean, he drives full speed backwards through Parisian streets up and down stairs while being shot at and tried to be cornered by police. It's unbelievable. And he's trying to put together the pieces. Who am I? Why can I do these things? It takes three movies. It takes three movies. But, but, but we get to the end and he gets it. He gets the coherent story that helps him understand who he is. The scriptures are that coherent story. It's the coherent story. All these things that are wonderful about life. All the things that are hard about life. All the things that, that frankly, are, are embarrassing about life. We want a coherent story that pieces them all together, that makes sense. That fits with our experience and understanding of life and why things are the way they are. And there's kind of two big umbrellas that try to answer this culturally. There, there's, and, and they're a little bit too reductionistic, right? They, 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 they either offer an explanation of only the joy of life or only the misery of life. David Brooks, a New York Times writer, um, wrote a a book called The Social Animal, where he draws draws on the cognitive sciences, and he says, we've actually got it wrong. you, You learned in school that we're rational beings, and that's not true. We're social beings. And until you understand yourself as a social being, you're never really going to understand life. And someone else says, no, 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 no. Actually, we're just made up of different chemicals. And if we can get the chemical balance right, then we're going to understand life and things are going to be good. And along comes the geneticist and says, no, 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 it's it's genetics. We've mapped DNA now. We we, we have the human genome. We know if we can turn this gene on and this gene off, we're going to do away with the cancer and the suffering and, and all the bad things and life's just going to be good. But they all don't account for our longings, our desires, They leave us wanting answers for those things. None of them are big enough to understand the complexity and the contradictions of life. I think Genesis does that for us. I think Genesis 1 gives us a picture and a story and a robust view of what it means to be human. Now, we've got to borrow a little bit from Genesis 3. We've got to keep reading to understand why things are broken, why there's misery and sadness why there's brokenness and disease, why there's evil and sin. But when you read them together, it makes sense. Why I have these longings as as an image bearer, why I have these desires, and why I keep going back to the same places that don't fill them, that don't get it done. While we're God's image bearers, it's been distorted by sin. We take the gifts we've been given all the time that we're supposed to serve God with and serve others with, and we hijack them to serve ourselves. 
Genesis 1 tells us that. Genesis' story of origins tells us and makes sense of that for us. It's the whole reason that Jesus had to come, right? He didn't have to come just to save you from your sins. He didn't have to come just to to ransom you or rescue you. He had to come also to redeem you. He had to come that, that, that the blot of sin and the effects of the fall might be undone. That's the great hope of the, the Christian life. That's the great hope of the, the story, of the, the redemptive story that we see in the Scriptures. Not just that He saved us and, and ransomed us and rescued us, but that He's redeeming us. That even now, if you know Jesus, you're being changed. More and more into what you were meant to be. More and more to restore us to the fullness, the image we're to bear. And how does he do it? Jesus comes as an image bearer. In the likeness of man and gets it right. For the first time in history, somebody bears the image of God perfectly. And so we see what it means to, to bear, to, to serve and to love and to speak grace and truth and mercy. And he gets to the end of his life and, and he, he takes a meal that, that's set before us and that, that tells us that, that we're loved and we're treasured. We're, we're invited to a feast. But it also tells us that we're needy. Not just for food to, to, to fill our bellies and give us strength, but, but that we need the body and the blood of Christ to redeem us, to save us. That's what this table's telling us. Does your story and the things you look to for worth and purpose make sense of your life? Or are you wandering? Wondering why things are the way they are. Jesus has come. Because you're valued. Because you have dignity and honor as an image bearer. But you know, just like I know, that things aren't like they're supposed to be. So Jesus says, come. For I am redeeming you. I am setting things right. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your word, for your care. We thank you for all the things that you tell us in your scriptures that we're worthy, that we have dignity and honor. We thank you for the value of purpose and work. We thank you for Jesus, who by his blood and his sacrifice is redeeming us. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.